Right, thanks so much, Julie. That's an epic read, isn't it? Um, you did such a great job. Thank you. Hello, everyone on Zoom. I'm just going to start recording. Uh, I meant to do that earlier. There we go. I think that's it. Right, good morning. Yeah. So as, as we've demonstrated, there is a lot in this passage before us um, this morning. But I want to begin by asking you, uh, where did you get your idea of Jesus? Where did you get your idea of Jesus? Did it just sort of rub off on you along the way? Or did you learn it from the Bible? Because here's the thing, there are loads of false pictures of Jesus around. I've been reading a book by Ray Ortland, and he was picking up on this idea. Here's one of the common ones that he suggests. Um, the feel-good Jesus. The feel-good Jesus. He always smiles. He always approves. He never disagrees. He's just grateful when you turn up at church every now and then. Whatever happens during the week, you can count on this Jesus to tell you everything is going to be okay. And everyone gets to go to heaven because everyone is basically okay at heart. He's cool with us. But this feel-good Jesus is no king. And deep down, we, we know that we, we can't rely on this kind of feel-good Jesus. And that in reality, our sin, our problems are more profound than this feel-good Jesus seems to be able to grasp. Which is why another Jesus... The feel-bad Jesus might be a better alternative. The feel-bad Jesus is, is another popular choice today. He's harsh. He's serious. He's always pointing out your mistakes and shortcomings. He's always disappointed with you. No matter what you try, you can never be good enough for this feel-bad Jesus. But... Whilst on the one hand he beats you down with disapproval, he offers a chance for you to work your way into his good books. If you can do enough for long enough, then maybe you can work your way into heaven by, by your good hard work. And something about that appeals to us. We, we want to compare ourselves and, and sort out our own mess by ourselves. And, and we love feeling slightly superior to, to everyone else around. And, and this feel-bad Jesus lets us indulge that. But he's no king either. And his followers are either crushed, dejected in helpless despair, or, or puffed up with their own smug self-righteousness. He's no king. He's no, not worth following either. Now, why am I starting like this? Why, why is this important? Well, this series, as it's set up on the screen behind me, the title for this series is, is Jesus First. And as we've been seeing, as we've been going through um, the, the six chapters already, Paul has been spelling out that the church is to be founded on the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, that's the wisdom the church is to be founded on. He is the wisdom. He is the centre of the church. He's the foundation of the message that those involved in gospel ministry proclaim. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Jesus first is what Paul has been saying again and again and again. 
So we need to make sure we're focused not on a Jesus of our own imagination, not some kind of hapless feel-good Jesus who doesn't take sin seriously or or, or, or not the feel-bad Jesus who, who offers no grace, no forgiveness, no power to change. But we need to ensure we are focused on the Jesus we meet in the pages of the Bible, the, the Jesus revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. He is King. Listen to some famous words from Paul from the book of Colossians. Uh, some famous words of Paul describing the Lord Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What a description of our King Jesus. That's our King, utterly, utterly supreme. And Paul goes on in the next verse in Colossians 1. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's our king. The lion and the lamb, as, as we'll sing a, a bit later. Uh, overflowing with self-sacrificial love. He takes our sin seriously. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend it's not a problem. But he doesn't condemn us in our brokenness and our weakness. He, he draws us near. He draws near to us, rather. So he can throw his arms around us and... And take our sin on himself so that he can make us new, so that he can make us holy in his sight, free from accusation. Our great King Jesus is creating a new community, a community that is radically different to the world around us. And so as we come to this chapter this morning, I wanted to just hold up for us our great king. Remind us, this is our King Jesus. It's this King Jesus who is um, speaking to us via the Apostle Paul through his word. And as we continue on from last week, where we were thinking about sex and the use of our bodies, this week, as as you will have seen as, as we read through, we're going to be focusing on, on marriage and divorce and singleness Uh, We're not going to have a chance to to go into detail on all the things that that are in this chapter. But what we'll be focusing on are things that our culture at best sees as foolishness, at worst sees as oppressive, damaging, hurtful. 
But this morning we need to, to see that, that whatever our world says, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And, and alongside that, we're, we're considering things that are deeply, deeply personal. Areas where perhaps we, we may well have failed. Areas where we feel and, and, and have experienced regret and, and pain. And just as Carl said last week, if you're sat here feeling like that, well, you're not on your own. And our King Jesus invites us to, to come to him, to, to bring our sin, our brokenness, our shame, because he loves us and he values us enough to pay for all our sins and to, to cover them over and to change us. So I wanted to hold that up before us before we get into the details of this passage. Um, so let me pray and, uh, and we'll get on with the rest of uh, chapter 7. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that those truths about our King Jesus are true. Thank you that he is utterly supreme. And thank you that he did not consider equality with, with, with God something to be used to his own advantage, but humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, in order to deal with our sin, to pay the price. How we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at uh, at Paul's words here to this church in Corinth written so long ago we pray Lord that you would help us to, to understand them help us to apply them to, to our context here today thank you that your word is living and active and Lord we we want to submit ourselves to the truth of your word we want to say that you are king and we bring our weakness and our fallenness and pray for your forgiveness and help. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we pray that you would help us to keep in step with him as he makes us more and more like the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, do keep um, chapter 7 open up in, uh, in front of you. Chapter 7 marks a turning point in, in the letter. Have a look at verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. He's been dealing with issues that have been reported back to him uh, so far in, in 1 Corinthians. But now he's turning directly to questions that this church had, had written to him to, to ask him about. So there's a slightly sort of weird dynamic at play. It's a bit like um, overhearing someone having a conversation on the phone. I don't know if you happen to do that much. Um, I'm surely not. But, but, but you get the idea. You can kind of piece together what's going on, but you're only getting one half of uh, one, one side of it. So Paul's going to deal uh, in the subsequent chapters of, of 1 Corinthians with issues and questions that they have specifically asked him. So today, marriage, divorce, singleness. Uh, next week, um, food offered to idols and, and uh and later on in chapters 12 to 14 about um, spiritual gifts. But here's what he's dealing with in chapter 7. Uh, he starts with this um, statement that in, in, in uh, 
quotations. Now for the matters you wrote about, verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Well, this church, as we've seen, is a bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand, as we saw last week and and previously, there, there were those who were happy to sleep with prostitutes. That was a social norm, and, and there would have been those in the church who would quite happily do that. Um, on the other, there would have been those, it seems, who, who were teaching that pleasure, uh, and physical pleasure in particular, was evil and, and had to be avoided. So sex was pleasure and, and has to be avoided. They, they thought in their understanding that once they'd become Christians, they're translated to this higher degree of glory and almost angelic-like in their new state. So, so there's no place for things like marriage and sex and that kind of stuff. We're, we're just sort of heavenly beings now and the body and all this kind of physical stuff doesn't matter. There would have been those in the church pushing that agenda. And that's behind this statement that he quotes in verse 1 it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship relations with a woman so what does paul say well he starts off in in these verses by defending the goodness of marriage and sex within the marriage relationship in fact he goes as far as to command husbands and wives to fulfill their duty to each other in this area So verse 2 and 3, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So for Paul, part of the answer to the sexual immorality problem that was around was not abstinence but regular sex with your spouse. This paragraph here in chapter 7 is is hugely positive and pro-sex, isn't it? And in verse 4, he he goes on and he drops the first of several countercultural bombshells. Chapter 7, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, what's so shocking about that, we might think? Well, culturally, in in the Greco-Roman culture, males, particularly males of high status, basically had carte blanche to to do whatever they wanted, with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted. No need to get consent or permission. If someone was a lower status than you, then they couldn't refuse. That's how things work. That's the kind of sexual ethic of the day. So do you see how how countercultural this would have been for Paul to, to say this? Particularly husbands, you do not have authority over your own body. Your wife does. This, is, this would have been radical, revolutionary stuff for Paul to say that. And it's radical in our culture too, what he um, spells out here. Because in our culture, particularly here in the West, 
self-actualization, freedom to express ourselves however we want. That's the, that's the kind of God of this age. We live in a, in a consumer age where we're all about my rights, my needs. And so easily we take that approach into relationships as well. So if, if you're not giving me what I need, well, I'm going to ditch you and find somebody else who will. And what Paul says here flies in the face of all of that, doesn't it? The New Testament doesn't, interestingly, speak in terms of of human rights. The New Testament instead speaks of human responsibilities, particularly for for the Christian. Rather than being self-absorbed, we're to be others-focused, so within marriage, when it comes to sexual intimacy, Paul says here, we're to serve one another. So maybe it's a legitimate question for us to, to ask ourselves if we're married this morning. Whose needs are we most focused on when it comes to, to intimacy? Our own or our spouse? So it's fair to say from those opening verses, Paul is pro-marriage and he is pro-regular sex within marriage. Have a look at verse 5. And notice that Satan wants to undermine that. Did you notice that? He wants to, to stop married couples from, from being intimate. He'd rather they had sex elsewhere out of the, the marriage relationship. So when uh, people are, are teaching in the church, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul counters that. He is pro-marriage. But at the same time, having gone from straight from extolling the virtues of sex within marriage, verses 6 to 8, he says this. I wish that all of you were as I were, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift another has that to the unmarried and the widows i say it is good for them to stay unmarried as i do so he starts off saying marriage is good but here he says singleness is good too in fact he, paul goes as, as far as saying it's it's better in, in his own opinion um, that, than being married and verses 32 to 35, he spells out some of the practical reasons for, for his, his preference. I would like you to be free from concern. This is uh, over the page, but verse 32. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. So do you see what he's, he's saying? A single person is freed from responsibilities in, in such a way that gives more time and space for, for ministry and devotion to the Lord. But I want us to notice especially how he describes marriage and singleness there in verse 7. Verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own 
gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. For Paul, singleness and marriage are a gift from the Lord. A gift. A charisma is, is the literal word. Um, it's actually the same word used in, in chapter 12 about um, gifts of the Spirit. Um, a, a gracious gift is what it means. Marriage, singleness are a gracious gift. Not an automatic right, but a gracious gift from the Lord. Sovereignly ordained, gracious gift. Gifts from, from our King. Our servant king who knows us, who loves us, who, who purchased us and who is for us. Now it may well be that it's a gift perhaps we don't want. It may well be something that is deeply painful for us, the gift that we find ourselves in. Well, we can take comfort from the truth of, of God's sovereign grace at work in our lives ordaining things oh it's it, it, it can be hard and I don't want to just give off some trite platitudes about that um, Paul is is realistic in this chapter and and pastoral so if whatever gift the Lord has given you is proving to be painful and difficult, I would encourage you to, to talk and to pray with someone about that. Um, do come and chat to me afterwards, or if it's not appropriate for you to, to chat to me, this, um, I'm sure um, someone like Dorothy Mallet would be happy to, to, to chat to you as well. Singleness, marriage... Are gracious gifts given to us from our King. But I want us to see um, alongside that, that the, the kind of equal status that Paul gives to singleness here. There's no place for looking down on singleness as some kind of subhuman, lesser state. Paul was single. There's lots of speculation as to whether he had been previously married. Uh, before he, he was converted and, and so maybe he was widowed or perhaps his wife left when he got converted. There's all kinds of speculation about that. The reality is we don't know. And I would suspect that in this chapter, this would be the place where he would say what his situation was. So I suspect that actually he, he, he was never married. But the Apostle Paul was single. Jesus himself was single and celibate, the most complete human being who ever walked the earth, was single and celibate. And so as, as a church, as, as churches more generally, we need to make sure we're not consciously or subconsciously making marriage an idol and, and neglecting or playing down the importance and value and dignity of the gracious gift of, of singleness. Marriage is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. We are to have a high view of marriage, but not too high. There's a tightrope to walk through all of these things, and Paul does it masterfully in this chapter. 
Well, having talked about marriage and singleness, Paul moves on to talk about divorce. And for Paul, Jesus' teaching on divorce is, is what he says should be our guide here too. So in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, Jesus um, talks about uh, divorce there. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. This is what Paul says. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Well, for Jesus and for Paul, there's an emphatic no to divorce, uh, except for marital unfaithfulness in Jesus's um, teaching. The Bible has a, has a high view of marriage in a way that the culture at the time and perhaps culture today doesn't. In the culture at Corinth, there would have been legal divorces with paperwork and those sorts of things. But perhaps more often what would happen would be that a wife or husband would, would simply leave. And that would be common and that would be easy and, and straightforward. And if you remember, there were those in the church talking about getting rid of pleasure and, and understanding themselves to be now in some sort of angelic state where there is no marriage and it's just us and the Lord. There's those with that point of view, um, now they're Christians, for them marriage no longer matters or applies and they would have been pushing that agenda in the church. And so Paul has to correct that and that's what he does here. Um. Whereas Jesus was dealing with specific questions from Pharisees trying to trip him up, Paul is speaking into a, an increasingly common situation as, as the gospel spread and as the church grew. That of one spouse being converted and the other not. Now Jesus in his teaching didn't directly address that issue. But here's what Paul has to say. Have a look down at verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now, it's not hard to imagine how difficult that situation is. Some of us have been or perhaps are in that situation. To see your spouse become a new person a new creation to have their priorities radically reorientated for for jesus now to be number one on their priority list and and not you that's an incredibly difficult thing for an unbelieving spouse to to understand and get their heads around so paul says if the unbelieving spouse is happy to live in that situation and make a go of it then the believer is to stay married. But verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Now in Corinth, there was also the dynamic of, of, of those who perhaps would have been pushing and teaching that um, in that situation, your non-Christian spouse would be polluting your holiness. 
So you'd need to divorce them for that reason and leave them. But Paul says, no. Have a look at verse 14. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So do you see what what he's saying? Uh, Far from the unbeliever polluting you and, and your household, it's the other way around. The Christian has an edifying, sanctifying effect on the whole household. And verse 16, how do, you, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Isn't that what we, we pray with our brothers and sisters in, in, in marriages in that situation? For Paul, it's an opportunity. So let's pray. Let's, let's support one another um, in, in those situations. Let's pray for God to be working by his spirit. To, to bring new life, to bring conversion. But before we move on to the next section here, I'm very conscious that we've just rattled through at high speed teaching that many people find incredibly difficult. And in the past, Christians have, uh, on, on, one, on the one hand, tried to, to soften Jesus' or Paul's words on divorce to to try and make ways around the kind of plain sense of, of the texts. And on the other hand, Christians have, have gone to the other extreme and to, turned divorce into to bar, binding law and the unpardonable sin for which people need to be excommunicated and, and removed. Both of those approaches is, is, is a mistake. And what we see here from Paul is much more pastoral and gentle language than, than any other section in, in the letter. He's, he's treading a tightrope here. He's pastorally realistic and gracious in what he's wanting to, to hold out to people. And, and we would be wise to follow his example as, as we think about these things, as we pray through those things, as we support one another through those things. Not specifically, Paul doesn't mention abuse. He doesn't mention abandonment. He doesn't mention all kinds of other painful situations within, in, in marriage. Um, and we don't have time to, to get into all of those ins and outs here. But, but if you would like to, to talk more about those things, then do come talk to, to me or Sam um, or Adam or, or, or one of the elders or, or Bob and Dorothy Mallet. I'm sure we'd, we'd be happy to, to listen and to pray with you and to talk with you. But we need to see that... Paul's not calling for Christians who've who've been divorced to be ostracised from church community. Far from it. We're to be a community of grace and of love. This church is not a church for perfect people. It's a church for broken people. uh, Weak people. We are are weak and we're broken and, and, and we come to find grace and help from our King Jesus. And this next section that we're going to finish our time thinking about 
at first reading might seem to be a bit out of place, sort of wedged in between teaching about marriage and singleness and divorce and then kind of unmarried and, and widows and, and that kind of thing. But I hope that we'll see as we go through this next section has encouragements for us, whatever our situation. And essentially what he's going to say in this next section, so from verse 17 to 24, his message is this. Live out your calling. Have a look at verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So in verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, three times he repeats this this same thing. We should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has called us to. Now, he's not saying that once you become a Christian, you never change. You, you never move house. You never change job. You exactly the situation you're in when you became a Christian, that's where you freeze and stay. For the, That's not what he's saying at all, because that's not what he did. He had a radical change of job, didn't he, when, in, when he got converted? Whatever circumstances the Lord has put you in, live for him in those circumstances. That's the bottom line of what he's wanting to say in this section here. And he picks on two of the most divisive issues around at the time to unpack what he means here. Circumcision and slavery. You couldn't pick more, two more <laughs> divisive things culturally. So circumcision, have a look at verses 18 and 19. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Well, trying to reverse a circumcision is logistically pretty complicated, I'd imagine. But that's not what he's getting at. We know from Galatians and, and Colossians, other letters that, he, that he's written, there would have been plenty of, uh, of Christians from a Jewish background who would have been falsely urging Gentile Christians, i.e. non-Jew Christians, to get circumcised, to make sure they were properly saved. It's all well and good for you to have Jesus, but you need to get circumcised too, otherwise you're not going to be a kosher Christian, they would have said. And Paul says, rubbish. Circumcision, uncircumcision is nothing. Those purely external rituals have no impact on our standing before the Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a good thing to say on Reformation day isn't it his point is that there's there's nothing external no rites or rituals no your marital status even married unmarried none of that has any impact on our standing before the lord and then he moves on to talk about slavery were you a slave when you were called don't let it trouble you although if you can gain your freedom do so for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. 
Now, slavery at, at, at this time is not the sort of tran- transatlantic slave trade we naturally jump to in our, in our minds when we hear the word slavery. So this is a different time, different situation. But if circumcision has, has to do with the kind of outward religious status, if, if that's what's in view, slavery, what, what's in view there is your social and your economic status. Here's what he's saying. Here and now you may be a slave, but in Christ you are free. This world is passing away, but you have an eternal identity in Christ that is beyond compare. And conversely, if you are a free person here and now, well, in Christ you are a slave of Christ. You've been purchased by him. You you belong to him. What's he saying? Well, your, your social circumstances don't matter compared to the heavenly realities that are true of you as a Christian. And that's true of your kind of social economic status. And that's true of your marital status, too, whether you're married or single, divorced, widowed, separated, whatever the circumstances It doesn't matter compared to the heavenly realities that are true of you as a Christian. So whatever your circumstances, you have the opportunity to serve God in them. And actually that's hugely encouraging for us, particularly if we're aware of of perhaps failures and regrets in the past. We're not to be shunned and excommunicated The temptation is for us to dwell on the past and the mistakes and the pain. Or perhaps the temptation is to to long for change in our circumstances now. Or Paul says no. We've got to live for him in the circumstances that we're in now. So it's a challenge for us is is how, how do we view the circumstances that we're in now? Do we spend our time just wishing for a change in our circumstances. Are our prayers, is our prayer life focused more on our external circumstances being changed and for God to change them more than asking God to help us serve him in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, that he's called us to? We're not called to a comfortable life. We're called to to serve God, to live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned us, just as he called us. Well, let's spend a bit of time uh, in in reflecting on all this. I'm going to lead us in in prayer. And again, let me just say again, if if there's things that have come up um, that you'd like to talk through more, then do grab um, me, Adam, Sam, one of the elders, um, Bob and Dorothy. We'd, we'd, we'd be really happy to, to talk things through and pray with you. Um, well, let's pray together. Some words from Romans 8. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. For, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hand back over to Adam.